We appreciate uh, the presence of everyone this evening. We do have a few that are visiting with us tonight. We're really glad that you're here. We appreciate uh, your presence with us. Uh, if you're passing through the area or here temporarily, we're especially glad that you're with us and taking the time out on the Lord's Day, Sunday, to worship together with His people. I've got a correction to make. I made a mistake this morning. I make my share of mistakes, at least my share of mistakes, I'm sure about that, but I do want to get things right. And so it's pointed out to me this morning that I attributed the statement in Daniel chapter 6 that God is a living God, enduring forever. I attributed that to Nebuchadnezzar, when actually it was Darius that uh, made that statement. The point is the same, that because of the actions of the faithful, uh, people come to believe in God. But I want to get that detail right. Now, I don't mind people telling me, now you made a mistake today, uh, because it tells me that people are listening, paying attention, and they want to help me get things right. I had other good discussion about the lesson this morning and some good positive comments about it, good uh, encouraging things people had to say. And so I, I appreciate that uh, whenever, uh, whenever it's done. Well, on Sunday nights over the last several weeks, we've been talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, in that story, in that, that account of the crucifixion of Christ, most of the time our attention is on Christ, and rightfully so. He is the Redeemer. He is the Savior. And we want to focus our attention on what He's done. But there are other figures in these accounts of the crucifixion. Uh, my, we might call them minor characters in the story, not that they're role in the events is unimportant or insignificant, but, but Christ is the main character, and these are, we might say, supporting figures. And so they're good, powerful lessons for us in their words and their deeds as well. And so, for example, we've talked about Caiaphas, the, the, the chief priest who examined, interrogated Jesus, and, and really his uh, resolved to see Jesus executed. His mind was made up. He didn't want to be confused with the facts. We made that observation about him. We talked about Pilate, who didn't have the strength of character to do what he really knew was right. He knew Jesus was innocent and should be released, but he didn't have that strength to go through with what he knew to be right. We talked about Peter, and Peter's just unawareness, if that's a word, unawareness, of his own weaknesses and vulnerability and what he might do when put under pressure. We saw his, his failing when he denied Jesus. On the other hand, we talked about the women at the cross and their courageous association with Christ and talked about how that's not atypical for women in the story of the Bible. There are many women who stand out as strong and courageous and faithful and committed to following Jesus. And so we talked about their role as well. Well, tonight we want to uh, do another installment in this particular series. Whenever we see pictures of the cross, sometimes we see one, one cross, but sometimes we see three crosses. You never see two crosses, or you never see four crosses. It's either one or three. Now, we understand why there's one cross depicted in those scenes, but why are there three? Why are there three crosses in these scenes of Jesus' crucifixion. Well, obviously, to most of us, we understand that the Bible tells us that Jesus was not the only victim of crucifixion on that day. 
that there were two others who were crucified along with them. And so in these pictures or paintings or depictions of the crucifixion, you'll see Jesus and the two others who were crucified that day. So we're going to talk about these two others today, the thieves that were crucified along with Jesus. And so I draw out some observations and some applications uh, from, their, from their stories. All four gospel accounts tell us that Jesus was crucified along with two others. Matthew says, at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And so notice that Matthew refers to them as robbers. In the book of Mark, Mark says, they crucified two robbers with him, one on the right and one on the left. Very similar to what Matthew has to say. Now, Luke is a little bit different. Luke says, Luke 23, verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left, or the other on the left. And then John, John 19, verse 18 says, there they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And so these depictions of the cross, Jesus is crucified in between two others, sometimes in those pictures or paintings or just depictions, this, the center cross will be bigger, won't it? It'll stand out in some way, again, focusing our attention on the death of Jesus. Well, I just want to observe some general information about these men and, and who they were, what they were, their role in the story. Notice that they're called robbers in Matthew and Mark's account. In both of those accounts, they're called robbers. Now, John simply says, two other men. Two other men were crucified with him on either side and Jesus in between. We noted as we read through these accounts that Luke says, criminals, they were criminals, evil workers, harmful, malicious, injurious lawbreakers. But Matthew and Mark call them robbers or, or thieves. Matthew 27, 38 and Mark 15, verse 27. Thieves or pirates or bandits. But there might be another element involved as well. This, this particular word might include the element of insurrectionist or revolutionary with violence perhaps even implied. Josephus uses this word to refer to the zealots. The zealots were sort of a resistance movement. And they were uh, resisting Roman occupation. They wanted their independence. They wanted independence for Israel. And uh, they were not opposed necessarily to, to violence in their, in their quest for independence. So they were sort of a, a resistance movement, sort of uh, uh, an insurrectionist movement, we might say, a revolutionary movement. And so Josephus describes the zealots with this particular word. But notice this as well. In, in John's account, John chapter 18 and verse 40, we find uh, Bar uh, Barabbas. Remember, Barabbas is the man the crowd cried for release. Instead of Jesus, Pilate wants to release Jesus or Barabbas, thinking that they would take Jesus rather than Barabbas, who is a real, a real ne'er-do-well. But they cried out for Barabbas instead. Now, John says Barabbas was a robber. And so there's our word, the same word that's used to describe these two men on the cross. But if you go over to Mark chapter 15 and verse 7, Barabbas is also described as an insurrectionist. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned uh, with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. 
And so it may very well be that this term, translated robber or thief, also suggests an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, and perhaps even uh, resorting to violence in their efforts to gain their independence. And so it may be that there are more than just simple thieves or simple robbers. That Jesus was crucified with them suggests that He is seen as one of them. And so you remember the charges in Luke chapter 23 brought against Jesus. He says He's a king. He's uh, misleading our nation as well as telling people not to pay their taxes. And so he, he's sort of a, an insurrectionist. Uh, he, he's engaged in the rebellion against the Romans. And so it may be that this was the day of execution for the insurrectionists. And so Jesus is crucified along with them. So keep that in mind as we go through our lesson tonight. Mark tells us that Scripture is fulfilled as these two are crucified alongside Jesus. In Mark chapter 15, verse 28, the Scripture was fulfilled. Verse 27 says, They crucified two robbers with Him, one on His right hand and one on the left. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And He was numbered with the transgressors, which is a quotation from Isaiah 53 and verse 12. And so, Jesus being crucified with these two men, clearly He's being identified with them. He is one of them, He's numbered with the transgressors. He's associated with these transgressors. And so what happens when Jesus is crucified, along with these two men, fulfills Scripture. There's another way in which what happens with these two men fulfills Scripture as well. Look at the 19th chapter of the book of John, John 19, beginning in verse 31. It says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So you have these three men on the cross, and so uh, they come to Jesus and ask, will you go break their legs? We'll talk about that, why that is, in just a moment. The soldiers came and, and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with him, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. One of the soldiers pierced His side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Verse 35, He who has seen has testified, His testimony is true, and He knows that He's telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, not a bone of Him will be broken. Now, where do we read that in the Old Testament? Well, we, in connection with the Passover, remember the Passover lamb was to be killed, and they was, the Passover lamb was to be eaten, and no bone was to be broken. So we read about that in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46, and Numbers chapter 9 and verse 12. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Remember the Passover lamb was killed, the blood of the lamb was spread around the door of the Israelites' home, and when the Lord passed through, slaying the firstborn in each family, when He saw the blood, He passed over, He passed over that house. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. When His blood is applied to us, well then the Lord passes over us, so to speak, and we're spared from His judgment. And so, when no bone was broken in the Passover lamb, no bone was to be broken, and no bone was broken in Jesus' crucifixion. You can see Jesus 
fulfills, when I say He's the greatest expression of that idea. Here's the Lamb of God, the, our Passover Lamb, and not a bone was broken. There's another passage that might come to bear in this connection as well. In the 34th Psalm, in verse 9, the psalmist says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So let's take note of that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And what greater example of that than Christ? Many of the are the afflictions of the righteous. What, what greater example of that than Christ? The Lord delivers him out of them all. And so, of course, Jesus is raised from the dead. He's delivered. Again, what greater example than Christ? He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And so the fact that the bones of the two thieves were broken, but not Jesus, that fulfills Scripture as well. Now, why would they break their bones? They wanted to hasten their deaths. And so, as a person is crucified, first of all, just, just the injury and the pain and the shock inflicted, I suppose what they did is just got a mallet or a hammer of some kind and just, wham, just broke, broke their shin bones. And that in and of itself, being inflicted on a person that's already undergone such injury, would hasten their death. But as the victim of crucifixion slumped down and he couldn't breathe, and then he would lift himself back up, push with his legs. If you've got broken legs, it's hard to do, isn't it? And so that would contribute to a faster death as well. Notice that apparently Jesus dies before the thieves. Jesus was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. No need to, he's already dead. The thieves apparently were not already dead, and so their legs were broken. And then one other observation. These two men spoke words very harshly against Jesus. Both of them did. And so let's look at Matthew's account of that. Matthew chapter 27, begin in verse 38. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 38. Picking up. In the middle of the account, Jesus is on the cross. The two thieves there are with him. And it says, At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Notice these words of ridicule and contempt. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now notice, both of them involved in that statement. The robbers, plural, who had been crucified with him were insulting him with the same words. And so they were ridiculing him. They were mock, mocking him. They were expressing their contempt in their insulting words. Which brings us then to really the, the body of the sermon tonight. Go to Luke chapter 23. Something happens while they're on the cross. One of the thieves, he begins to... Think about the situation. He begins to think about his situation. 
And he has a change of heart. He has a change of mind. And so let's read about that. Luke 23, verse 39. Now one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so it seems that in the beginning of the ordeal, at least, both of them were saying this kind of thing toward Jesus. But on this occasion, verse 40 says, The other answered, and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And so this thief, no doubt watching Jesus, thinking about what Jesus has gone through, seeing how he responded in the situation, seeing his composure, really moves him to shame, doesn't it? Moves him to shame. And so he has a change of attitude. He has a change of heart. He, in effect, tells the other thief, you need to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you know, we're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he continues in verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And so, an, a, a complete different picture than the one we get from Matthew and Mark who tell us about this man participating and sharing in the abuse hurled at Jesus. A complete change of mind, a complete chain, change of heart. And Jesus grants him entrance into paradise, which I take to be the equivalent of the kingdom. Remember me when you come in your kingdom, today you'll be with me in paradise. The New Testament speaks of paradise three times. This is one of them. But two other occasions the New Testament refers to paradise. One of them is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul, apparently referring to himself, describes uh, an occasion when he was caught up into the third heaven. And so let's read about that in verse 3, uh, verses 2 and 3 of 2 Corinthians 12. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up into the third heaven. I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And so here Paul, apparently referring to himself in a, in a humble way, he, he was caught up into the third heaven, or he says, up into paradise, where he saw some things and heard some things that he wasn't permitted to describe. That's one other time we read about paradise in the New Testament. There's, there's one other time in Revelation chapter 2, Remember in the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we have these messages to the seven churches. This is the first one. This is written to Ephesus. And he says in verse 7, He has an ear to ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now later in chapter 22, we find the tree of life in heaven. And so here it's in the paradise of God. Of God. And so when Jesus tells the, the thief, Today you'll be with me in paradise, it's referring to God's reward for, for his people. 
An interesting thing to me is, how did he know to make this confession? <laughs> we don't know anything about this man's background. We don't know where he came from, where he lived, where he's brought up. We don't know anything about his parents or his upbringing. Was he raised by godly parents who taught him right from wrong, and then he got off track and went in the wrong direction? Well, there, there have been lots of people who have done that. Has he heard, had he heard John preach? Well, lots of people heard John preach. Uh, Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to hear John preach. So, possibility that he had heard John preach about the coming kingdom and the coming Messiah. Maybe he had heard Jesus Himself teach. He has some kind of religious background. We, we know that. He knows about the kingdom of God. He knows the King is coming. And so, he's come to state his conviction that Jesus is the King who's going to come in His kingdom. Now, I don't know that would be unusual for Jews at the time to know about the kingdom of God is coming, and the King is coming. Luke tells us in Luke 3 in verse 15 that at that time the people were in a state of expectation. So they, they were expecting the Messiah or the King to come. And so this man would have learned, no doubt, at some point in his life about, about those things. All we really know for sure is that he was a criminal. He admitted his crime. He's confessed his crime. You see, we are receiving our just desserts, getting exactly what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. He knows about the kingdom of God, and he came to believe that Jesus was the king of the kingdom of God. It's really an astounding confession when you think about it a little bit. You see, he's on the cross, and Jesus is on the cross. They're not going anywhere, you know. <laughs> these, are the, these are their last hours, and yet, he says Jesus is going to come in His kingdom. He sees Jesus nailed to the cross. He's right there beside Him. And yet, he has confidence that Jesus is the one who's going to come in His kingdom. He says, remember me. In a good way, of course. Be benevolent toward me. Bless me when you come in your kingdom. That's a pretty amazing confession made by a man who's within hours of his death. And yet that's the confession that he does make. Well, let's make some, some observations here, some applications. The first one I would draw out, and there are lots of them to be made, of course, is the fact that, that Jesus is the Savior of all. Jesus is able to save everyone. We might say it this way. The mercy of the Lord is boundless. And so just think about who this man was. He's described as a criminal and a thief. Maybe, maybe worse than that, we've suggested. And yet Jesus forgives, him, forgives his sins and grants him eternal life. He was not a nice person, you know. He wasn't a good person who made some mistakes. He wasn't a nice guy that committed some minor infractions of the traditions or small violations of the law or committed some peccadilloes along the way. He, he was a bad guy, and yet Jesus forgives him. You see, the mercy of the Lord is boundless. There are lots of other such occasions in Jesus' life and teaching. I'm mindful of Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to uh, Nazareth and, and preaches there. And uh, he says, he reads from the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives. I'm here to proclaim release. 
And he goes on to talk about how there are many widows in the Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who is a widow. She's a Gentile is the idea. And then he goes on to talk about Naaman, the Syrian, how, how he was cleansed of his lepers, another, another Gentile. So God is the God of the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And God is the Savior of the Gentiles. Now they didn't like what Jesus had to say about that on that occasion. And they reacted violently against it. But you see, Jesus is the Savior of all men, of everyone. No one is beyond the bounds of God's mercy. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 29... Jesus is criticized for eating with the tax collectors and sinners. Levi gave a big reception for him at his house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples. Why, why do you eat and, and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it's, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're not beyond the bounds of the Lord's mercy. A sinful woman anoints Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7 and verse 39, and Jesus accepts her. This sin, now Simon, you remember, said, now, now if he had known what kind of woman she is, he would never allow her to do that. And, and, and Jesus corrects him. Jesus accepted her. She's not beyond the bounds of the Lord's mercy. He tells a story in Luke chapter 15 about a younger son who took his inheritance before his father died. He took his inheritance and went and spent it, the text says, in, in riotous living. That's the, those are the words I remember from my youth. You know, he spent this in riotous living. Later on, his older brother accuses him of spending the wealth on prostitutes. And yet when he returns to his father, his father receives him. You see, the prodigal son is not beyond the bounds of the Lord's mercy. And so Jesus is the Savior of all men, of the Gentiles, of the sinners and tax collectors, of sinful women, of prodigal sons. None of them are beyond the bounds. The same is taught throughout the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus describes himself as injurious, a blasphemer, the chief of sinners, and yet he found mercy. The Lord has mercy on him. I'm the worst. I'm the worst of the worst. You know, I persecuted the church, and yet the Lord had mercy on me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we see a, a list of those who were washed and sanctified and justified even though before they had been, oh, homosexuals and thieves and covetous and drunkards and sexually immoral and all of those things. And so, and so all people, no matter what we've done, all people uh, are, can be recipients of the Lord's mercy. Even Peter, who denied the Lord, knew better, but out of fear denied the Lord. Even Peter was forgiven. No one, no one goes so far that when they return, they'll be rejected. 
Sometimes people have a problem with the boundless mercy of God. In Luke chapter 15, we talked about the story of the prodigal son a little bit a moment ago. Um, you, you remember that the prodigal son returns, and they have a big celebration for, the, for, for him. His older brother is out in the field, and he, he's working, he's fulfilling his responsibility uh, to his father. And he hears the commotion, he's the singing and the dancing and things like that, verse 25 tells us. And he asks one of the servants, well, what's going on? Well, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back, to, back safe and sound. And he was angry, not willing to go in. His father came, he began pleading with him. And he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. That's a little questionable, isn't it? And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. When the son of yours came, notice again, here's the When the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said, Son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. And so here this older brother sort of resented the mercy of the father who accepted the prodigal son back. And really that's the point of the parable. If you go back to, to verse 1 of chapter 15, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. <clears throat> And in the story, Jesus criticizes that attitude. Jesus came to save sinners. When a sinner repents, there's joy in heaven, and there should be joy on earth. When someone seeks forgiveness, regardless of their background, they might be a thief. Regardless of their background, their appearance, their wealth, their potential, their past, it's an occasion of joy. No one is beyond the bounds of God's mercy. A second point, the story of the thief on the cross illustrates the power of the cross to change lives. The statement that the thief makes, remember me when you come in your kingdom, indicates that he had been a criminal. We, we're, we're, we're getting the justice that we deserve, maybe even a violent man bordering on a terrorist. No respect for Jesus at first, but at some point he reconsiders things. He looks at his life. He considers Jesus on the cross, he's moved to shame, and he repents. What a change in a person's life. And, and what was the power to bring that change about? What was the motivation? It's the cross, isn't it? No doubt he sees Jesus on the, he's right there, he can see it. You know, we kind of have to imagine it in our, in, our, in our mind. But he sees the cross, he sees Jesus on the cross, he sees Jesus, how, how He handles Himself. He sees His composure. He hears His words. He sees how Jesus responds. And he, he knows that Jesus has not done anything wrong. It makes Him ashamed of Himself. And He changes His life. Now Paul discusses the power of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 18 he says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, is the power of God. 
He goes on a little bit later to say in verse 24, to those who are the called, both Jews and, and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul experienced this in his own life. As we said a moment ago, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. But I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly. And so here's my former life, exceedingly mad against the gospel and the church. And now because of the cross, because of the crucifixion of Jesus, his life has been changed completely. Galatians chapter 2 is another good statement of Paul to illustrate the point. Galatians 2 and verse 14, May it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What affected the change in my life? It was the cross of Christ, Paul would say. So that's the power of the cross. There's nothing so powerful to change a person's life as the cross of Christ. If we embrace it, make it the paradigm for our life, Jesus says, take up my cross daily and follow me. And so if we bear our cross daily and follow him, if we crucify ourselves to the world and the world to us, and so the cross becomes sort of the model that we pattern our lives after, it will change our lives. Now, not necessarily immediately. Now, I, I kind of want to make this observation. Sometimes I think people think, well, you know, my life is in a turmoil. My life is in a mess. Things are not going very well. I think I'll go to church. They go to church once, and then on Monday they get up, and everything's the same. Well, that didn't work, you know. Or they have a child who's in trouble, and a child that's a little bit uh, that's misbehaving. And I'm going to take them to church. There come a time or two, and the change isn't sudden, and so they, they give up. The, the, the cross is powerful to change our lives, and no doubt sometimes it affects a sudden change in our lives. But, but more often, it's more gradual. And as we mature in our faith, and as we develop in our discipleship, we realize one day, you know, I'm a much different person than I used to be. I used to talk this way, dress this way, and behave this way. My attitude was this. My goals were this. But you know, since I've been following Christ, my life has changed. That's the power of the cross to change a person's life. And so, simply an illustration of that in The Thief. We might ask, what, what kind of life do you lead? No matter what it might be, the answer is the cross can change you. It's never too late to come to Christ. The thief was dying. He was in his last hours. He wasn't coming down from the cross. He'd have no opportunity to do good works in Christ's name, to evangelize his family or his friends, to hear Jesus preach and teach. And he might have thought, you know, it's too late for me to turn to Christ. It's too late. But he did turn to Christ, and Jesus accepted him. Jesus doesn't say to him, you know, you should have thought about that years ago. You know, it's too late for you. Jesus doesn't respond in that way. And so here he is at the end, the very end of his life, and Jesus responds to him. You know, Jesus teaches in Matthew 20, even those who respond in the 11th hour are going to be rewarded. And so let's never think, you know, it's too late for me. 
I, I should have done that long ago. My opportunity has, has passed me by. No, no, never too late. The thief on the cross teaches us that. And I want to make one other point, and then we'll, we'll close tonight. The episode involving the thief on the cross is sometimes used to negate the requirement to be baptized in order to receive the remission of sins. Maybe you've had people you know, bring that up to you, talking about baptism. You say, you know, the, the Bible says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And why do you wait? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And, you know, 1 Peter 3 verse 21 says, baptism even now saves us. And it's not unusual for someone to say, well, what about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and yet he was saved. And so what, what about that thief on the cross? How does it affect what the Scriptures teach about baptism? Well, I would say, first of all, we really don't know very much about the background of the thief. He may very well have been baptized. We don't know whether he was baptized or not, really. Now, he has some spiritual training in his background. We know that because he knows about the kingdom of God and the coming king and things like that. And so he had some religious training. So perhaps he was baptized after John's baptism. We really don't know one way or the other. And so the assumption that he wasn't baptized is really not, not founded, is it? But set that aside. When we stress the necessity of baptism from Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16, and other passages, we refer to the baptism of the Great Commission. Remember Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells the apostles, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And in Acts chapter 2, that commission begins to be carried out. The day of Pentecost, Peter and the other apostles get up and preach the resurrection of Jesus. And when the audience cries out, what shall we do? They're, they're told, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And so they're fulfilling the commission. It begins to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Now think about that in relation to the life and death of the thief. When was the commission to go make disciples, baptizing them, given? Before the thief lived and died, or after the thief lived and died? Well, certainly after, wasn't it? And so Jesus gives that commission to His apostles after His death and resurrection, and before His ascension, but, but after His resur resurrection. And so clearly after the life and death of the thief on the cross. And it began to be carried out on the day of Pentecost, still, still after the death of the thief of the cross. And so, of course, the man was not baptized as people were beginning on the day of Pentecost. Well, that commission wasn't given until after he died. And that commission wasn't even begun to be carried out until even later on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. We would not expect the man to be required to obey an order that wasn't given until after his death, would we? Well, that's, that's not the way we, we uh, treat situations and people. A man lives and dies, then a law is passed, and we hold the man accountable for not obeying the law that wasn't passed until after he died? Well, well, of course not. And so we wouldn't expect the man to be required to obey the command to be baptized as Jesus gave in the Great Commission. 
as a child of the covenant, <laughs> child of the co- he, was, he was born into the covenant. As a child of the covenant, as he turned to God, confessed his sin, turned away from it, appealed to Christ to save him, he was. Now, we don't live under those circumstances, do we? Uh, the com- Great Commission was given long ago, long before our birth. Many, many years ago, 2,000 years ago, the command to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We live on this side of that command. That, co- that commission began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost long ago. We, we don't live before that began. We, we live on this side of that. And so we live in different circumstances. We live in a, a different time, so to speak. And so, of course, those instructions do apply to us. The command to be baptized for the remission of our sins. So, I have a whole lot to say about that. Seems not that difficult to me. The the case of the thief on the cross. We live under the Great Commission. And the commands of the gospel associated with the Great Commission are binding on us. And so, we need to know assuredly that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of our sins. All right, our time's out. Well-known story, the thief on the cross, sometimes misused, but we, we don't want to misuse it. You know, one of the things that we want to do is see clearly what this story does teach us about Christ and the power of the cross. What does it say to us about the cross? Well, it says to us, Jesus is the Savior of all men, everybody. Moral, immoral, godly, ungodly, Jesus can save you. (laughs) No one is beyond the bounds of the mercy of God. No matter how heinous we've sinned, no matter how, I say sometimes, no matter how great the sin, no matter how many sins, the mercy of God can find us and it can save us. And it's never too late. Now that's not permission to wait to respond to the gospel, but it does give us hope, doesn't it? That it may be that you know, our youth is past and our ability is not what it was, but you still have time and you still can respond and the Lord will accept you and you'll receive the reward. And so let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for today, the Lord's day. We're thankful for this opportunity to meet together and to worship you today. We pray that what we've done in our worship has been acceptable to you. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to read it and study it. Help us, Father, to see what you would have us to know in your word. We ask you to open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things that are there. And as we see these things and as we understand them, help us, Father, to apply them so that we might be the kind of people that you want us to be. Help us to see our own areas where we need to improve, uh, where we're at fault, where we're in the wrong. And as we see those things in light of your word, Father, help us to correct them. Father, we're thankful for this particular story of this man. Such a rich story. Tells us so many things about your love, your mercy, the power of the cross. Our Father, we pray that we might see what you would have us to see from it, and that we might use it to better ourselves in your kingdom. 
We look forward to that day, Father, when by your grace, by your mercy, by your patience, we'll be admitted into paradise. We'll be admitted into the eternal kingdom. We'll be in your presence, praising you forever and ever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. If you're here to